Welcome to Momentum Africa. I'm your host, Hashim Mek. Our show features African leaders that are shifting the paradigms in their fields. We explore themes of leadership, economic development, current challenges, and how these leaders are providing innovative solutions to be catalysts of change in their communities. Here at Momentum Africa, we understand that there are no panacea to all problems. And this is why we examine the following topics. The influence of past and current leaders, economic development, philanthropy, culture, and health within the continent of Africa. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Nefertiti A. Poplampo to Momentum Africa podcast. Nefertiti, who is Ghanaian-American, holds a PhD in instructional systems and learning technologies with a professional certificate in project management. She is the founder of the Nefertiti Project, an organization that brings 21st century cognitive science to everyday practice in teaching and learning as well as organizational change management. Nefertiti has been teaching and training faculty, staff and students for over 20 years at numerous organizations across the United States, internationally and online. Nefertiti has recently returned to working and living in Ghana after over two decades away. She is driving the movement towards learner-centered, active teaching, practice, and relevant 21st century curriculum across Sub-Saharan Africa. She has won multiple awards for excellence in teaching, engagement, and administration. So can you start by uh, letting our viewers know uh, about uh, what you have studied so far and how you as a, an expert in instruction design technologies systems systems analysis administration project management if you can tell us uh, what you do and how you get your start okay well um my field instructional design for a lot of people when you say you're an instructional designer they you know a lot of people have not heard of that field it is fairly broad. It, we basically apply the principles of cognitive science or learning science to everyday problems. Some of them might be performance problems. So we do things like by understanding the way that people learn and are oriented towards things, people's attitudes, etc. We are able to improve their performance by analyzing their situations or their systems and figuring out what's wrong and how we can change those. So we do a lot with change management, human performance, and things like that. So I work across many areas because I also bring technology to the application of solving those problems. But um, I'm also um, project management cert certified. But right now my focus is kind of in teaching and learning. And so we are doing some really current, exciting um, learning science that we're applying to curricular issues. I'm sure we'll be talking about that a little bit more later. But that's pretty much the field of instructional technology and what I do. So as a founder of the Nefertiti Project, can you tell us what uh, your audience, uh, I mean, to, can you tell us and, uh, so that our audience would get to know what the Nefertiti Project is and how the idea itself came about? Okay, so I guess in a nutshell, like down the center, there's always the, the side things that I do. But down the center, we're basically bringing what we call 21st century teaching and learning practices to 
current day environment. So, for example, you know, we, we talk about um, whether, you know, a classroom or a training hall is learner-centered or it's teacher-centered. And we know that learner-centered environments create, you know, more critical thinkers, people who actually learn and own material, people who are able to get through, they make more resilient, you know, outcomes as far as the, the graduates or the trainees. And so what the NFG project is working on right now, we actually have a pretty big campaign going, is to try to bring that science, the basic science that changes the paradigm from teacher-centered to learner-centered, trying to bring that science to everyday people so that everybody can be talking about it to hopefully make a platform in the future for us to all hopefully evolve towards more active learning and learner-centered learning environments. I like that. As a teacher, uh, I very much like the, uh, this uh, philosophy of uh, uh, teaching in academia. So uh, would you also say as an educator, since we're talking about curriculum and, and teaching, what's the importance of having cultural relevant contents in your uh, curriculum? Oh my gosh, it's so huge. It's so huge. So what people don't realize, one of the, one of the underpinning ideas when we talk about current cognitive science is that we understand the brain to be a network and not a list. What that means is in order to add something to it, you don't just stick it on the bottom of the list or the top of the list, right? You have to connect it to something because the brain works like that. It works in nodes where you add one idea to the other idea and it's through the original one that the mind can access that. And so the reason why that's so critical is because what somebody carries around as part of their knowledge on something is very much culturally based, right? And so how you present something to somebody or how you ask them about something or how you teach them about something all is going to be greatly influenced by whether or not their cultural context is known or understood by you, right? Or whether or not they'll, they'll be able to understand it the way that you need them to, or if they will um, be able to own that information as a result of the way that you presented it. So it's, it's almost everything really, um, Cultural context is a really big deal, especially in my field, a really big deal. That's really interesting. Now, uh, throughout your uh, amazing professional journey, what has been your uh, secret sauce, if I may say, and in terms of your leadership principle, uh, principles that have inspired you to become the uh, person you are today? Well, I think for me... Overall, I think one of my big principles, like sort of underlying most of the things that I do is, is transparency and authenticity. So I've, I've been able to elicit performance, you know, just to drive change or to seed new movements in different areas or to, to get people involved in things just by being fully authentic and transparent, to be open and clear on what I'm doing and it allows you to empower other people to do things because you don't, you're not trying to manipulate them into doing anything. You can just tell them, listen, this is why I feel strongly about this. This is what's going on. You know, will you join me? And so for me, transparency has always been key as an educator. I know that I, I have, I've always had colleagues who think of, 
you know, us and them more like the students and then us, you know, and there's two different things, two different groups where I think about us more as kind of working together towards a particular goal. That is a slight shift also when I talk about 21st century learning, that that's a shift that happens in that where you recognize yourself as walking along with this learner and guiding them towards a goal as opposed to being in front of them and telling them something or letting them know what to do. And that's that's always worked for me. So personally, it's sort of one of my own principles and then it happens to be supported by the science. So you can imagine that I'm 100% behind that at this point, right? Totally. Uh, and I like the, this philosophy of working together and guiding rather than uh, dictating to them what to do. So as a leader, obviously, as you said, uh, you also work in manage, managing uh, projects and across uh, different sectors from manufacturing to uh, food and, and others. So what would you say are the lessons that you have learned having successfully navigated uh, these industries as a woman? Um, I guess I could say that I've learned to really pay attention and listen before you move in any specific context, you know, listen before you act, just really <laughs> dig in and make sure that you're hearing everybody. Another thing that I would say, um, I always think about, you know, the stakeholders when I, cause I, you know, I do, I do ethics training also as part of the NFTD project. And one of the things that causes people to behave unethically since it's technically not illegal, but it's just not ethical. One of the things that, you know, enables people to do that is just you, not considering the people who will be impacted by what they're doing. And so I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, being able to behave in ways that really end up being a blessing to the entire system, not just the part that you can see and what you're looking at, I think really paying attention and listening and looking for the rest of the stakeholders, looking for the other people who might have a stake in that and seeing if you can incorporate whatever their concerns are, if you can solve problems for them too, if you could create value for them as well. I would say that those are the sorts of things that I've seen to be useful more and more in my career and I'm starting to hold to a lot. So being in the shoes of others and catering to addressing their needs and adding value to what you basically filling the gaps for for their for the for their interests and by that you attract their uh, respect and 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 also at the same time you got to make a a, a valuable contribution to that uh, uh, I like that very much now on that same topic so having started uh, the Nefertiti project what would you say are effective strategies for small businesses and social innova innovators like yourself to be successful and uh, more sustainable in Ghana or in Africa or anywhere else? You know, this is, this is anywhere and more and more now for the youth. They have to think in terms of what's going to cause us to be successful because the old ways of doing things aren't working as much. You know, employment doesn't look the same now as it did, you know, maybe back when I was uh, first finishing undergrad or something like that. But I would say it's it's that almost similar to what I, I said a moment ago is look to create value. I mean, I'm a strong believer that 
you know, the, the universal principle of give to be given works, right? If you make yourself valuable in a situation, that system will reward you. Systems reward value. And so if, you know, if people can really start to think, how can I be a blessing? How, where is their problem? What, what is hurting somebody that I have insights on? And, I, you know, and, and be able to, to go in, in that area and try to make a difference. I think that that's really a big, you know, a, a big piece of how they can be successful in this day and age. But also in sub-Saharan Africa, I've got to be honest and say, I, I guess sometimes the resource poverty keeps us from being that way. It's almost like if you know about like abundance and scarcity mentality, the resource poverty sometimes keeps us more in a scarcity mentality and it keeps us a little bit more reserved about just flat out open wide being a blessing to other people because we have sometimes a bit of a a sense of a grab and I have to keep this for myself or I can't allow my brother to go ahead because it feels like there isn't enough to go around. And it's unfortunate because that's actually the opposite of the attitude that we're going to need to get ahead from where we are. And so I would say that, you know, the effective strategies these days, obviously there's so much to learn and so much to know. So try to, you know, make sure that you're, you're learning, but really just look and look at ways you can, you can create value. So working with others and, and instead of uh, thinking more about the self, think about others uh, to, to work cooperatively to to go ahead and and maximize the benefits. That's very uh, uh, interesting you say that. And uh, now, obviously, as a woman in business education and and project mm-hmm. management, admin, and others, you must have uh, come across some obstacles that have uh, come your way? So, so as working as, as a black woman in, um, in IT, <laughs> so I, I, I did um, a lot of consulting and I taught mostly in the IT field um, in the United States. You know, it's almost stereotypical because you're, you're black and you're a woman and you're working in a male-dominated field what does that look like, right? What sort of interesting things will happen? I, however, my story, interestingly, has been maybe not typical in that sense because I've been promoted more than once above, you know, ahead of uh, white male colleagues uh, at, at different places. And, and I haven't necessarily, on a professional level, I haven't seen that to have to have hindered me, not when I was working in the States. I, I, I hadn't perceived it if it did. And I mean, I worked really hard and usually my efforts are, are recognized or rewarded. I haven't hadn't really had much of an issue with that. Coming back to Ghana, however, I have noticed a slight difference in that dynamic um, that, you know, Ghanaian men are, are maybe a little bit more, I, I don't know, I guess I could say controlling or they would expect for you to defer to their, uh, their ideas sometimes a little bit more, regardless of what your position is or what your competence may be in a particular area. I've also, I hear more about this than I have to deal with it. I deal with it just I've kind of face a little bit. There's also this sort of underlying, you know, objectivity that people, the, the, um, 
objectify women a little bit. And so we see this dynamic when women are trying to get business done or get contracts and things where men think that there's a commodity there that they can barter for what it is that they're doing. Um, that's, that's definitely been, been an issue um, since I've been back. But like I said, I'm, I, I told you I'm sort of risk averse. I, I tend to structure my business models such that I shouldn't have to run into that too much. And this is the way that I'm, I mean, I'm trying to work around it. But yeah, those are the sorts of things that you find on this continent, you know, being a woman working here. So if you, uh, so I know you said you're risk averse, but I mean, are they uh, upfront about it when they're trying to, I mean, what, if you can give us a picture of what uh, some of the things that happens and also I mean, is that part of uh, your uh, business model, someone who have understood uh, how to uh, carry yourself in multicultural dimensions, but also to uh, someone who is an educator? I mean, where did that sense of uh, knowledge come from so that our viewers could also learn something from it if, they're found, if they find themselves in a similar situation? You said, where did this, which, when you said that sense of knowledge, which one are you referring to? I mean, like, uh, of learning how to avoid being caught up in this, uh, in this uh, cultural, cultural uh, encountering that you have with men in Ghana in particular. Okay, so, all right, so I'll answer the first part of the question and then I'll tell you as far as how I came up with my solution. I think that just has a lot to do with the way that I, you know, approach my own hard work, but. For the, the first part of that, whether or not people are up, you know, guys are upfront about this. So I'll tell you a story about <laughs> when I first got back. I mean, there are other ones, but this one is sort of stereotypically, you know, how people would behave. So there was a gentleman who he realized when I first got back that I was looking for contracts within this area, sort of the work that I do. And he told me, oh, I can get you a contract at one of these large organizations. He says, oh, I'm really good friends with so-and-so. I'll, you know. I'll send you his number or I'll, I'll give him a call. So he, you know, and he comes over to my house and he's like, Oh, did you get a call from the guy? I gave him your info. And I was like, no, it's like, Oh, you know what? Let me call him right now. He can get you a job. And, you know, he can get you a contract. And so, and so in no, in no time. And he calls, the guy, Oh, he didn't pick up and whatever. And then he starts trying to be all like grabby. Hey, let me, let me give you a massage or let me, like, whatever. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think so. And he was really, you know, persistent. And then he would keep, sort of bringing up this, oh, you know, did you send me your CV? Because I was going to send it to the guy, you know, like I can get you a job and you should be nice to me type of thing. And I mean, it didn't go anywhere because I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sleep on the streets before I have to bother with that. That's not, that's, that's not, um, not really an option for me. Uh, but so going from there to answer this, the second part of your question, yes, to how I came up with a solution my solution is based on the way that I work. I have, I have a, a high need for my work to be efficient. That means that my input and my output need to be close. I can't put in, you know, 50 G's of effort and get out 20. I will go back into that system and make sure that it's optimized. So I just need for my work to be, to be productive, right? And so for me, when I create a business model, which somewhere in the middle 
there's that level of uncertainty and there's the possibility that maybe it won't go because some guy will be in the way and he's like, Hey, I want a favor. And I'm like, as I always will be, um, how about no, then all of a sudden all the work that I did for that goes away. I can't really, uh, that doesn't, that doesn't give me enough motivation for me to keep doing the work that I do knowing that I have that variable within my business model. And so it almost, I didn't have a choice, but to think about models that would allow me to work around that. So to think about doing more grant funded work or work on, um, you know, with larger organizations and also, you know, running my own consultancy more than working in other places or working for foreign organizations here. That's been sort of my way of getting around that. That's really interesting. So having said that now, what, they obviously, as a successful uh, woman in business, doing consultancy and uh, black woman in IT from America to now living in Ghana and working in other sub-Saharan African countries, there must have been people uh, along your uh, academic and professional journey that have uh, helped you to become uh, the amazing uh, and successful leader that you are today. So who? might those be? So I've, I've definitely been blessed when it comes to having people around me who have been blessed professionally. I was really, really, um, I use the word blessed when I would say lucky to, to have some really good mentors early in my career um, for my master's program. Had some excellent professors at the, University of South Florida. Um, there's a one of my professors, Dr. Ann Barron. She was just such. She was just so amazing at what she did, and her ability to teach. Obviously, we teach education. We teach instructional design. So for those, you know, uh, professors who are good at what they're doing, they're also just excellent educators. And I think she laid such a strong foundation for me in my field in terms of of um, processes, and it's part of why I, I had such a strong project management skill set before I was explicitly studying project management because instructional systems design is very uh, much based on managing large projects. And so um, Dr. Aaron is definitely one of, um, you know, someone who's really helped me a lot in that. Had other, you know, Dr. Jim White, other ones in my program that, that really set a strong foundation for me. And then in my PhD program, at, by this point, you know, I'm sort of focusing on this, you know, active learning and, and uh, learner-centered uh, teaching and learning practices. And I had a few professors there also, um, one that comes to mind, one, you know, some of them in terms of my research uh, competencies, uh, Dr. Linda Schrader, she was just amazing, amazing educator, amazing researcher, and just really inspires you almost, like besides the fact that your brain is growing almost visibly, right? You know, you're really inspired. Another one when it comes to teaching, um, Dr. Klein, Dr. Jim Klein, I almost get like goosebumps talking about he's such just powerful minds. And the thing about them for me, for, for Dr. Klein, for example, I told you I have this thing with efficiency. I really want to communicate clearly and 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 it's just the way that I, I think, you know, clarity and sort of being succinct, et cetera. And sometimes in academic writing, especially like on the on PhD level, PhD level, things get a little fuzzy and people write these long, convoluted sentences. It makes it hard to to even understand what's being said, but it's a culture in there. 
And I remember that reading Dr. Klein's work, besides being in his classes, was the first time I said, this is the model of how I want to be able to write because he's, he's you know, a highly, you know, uh, acclaimed educator. And he writes, you know, he writes a lot, but he writes very clearly. And, and you know, it was, it was one of the things that inspires me because that's, I think that's a little bit in the minority in a lot of education and out there. So that was, you know, people like that. For me, it's just been the people who are doing what, speaks to me but are not in the majority because a lot of the things that I do are a little bit unusual um, that, have, that have really pulled me forward. And besides that, just in my personal life, I've always had whatever project I'm working on, I've always had these people around me, you know, that support me. Um, one of my colleagues, I call her my sister, um, Dr. Lee, Jungmin Lee, I think you might be familiar with. Uh, she's another one that has, through so many different ups and downs in my life, that have just by being kindred spirits and understanding how she understands me, I understand her and understanding my vision has done so much to drive me towards where I'm going. I literally think that there's some goals that I've reached that I probably wouldn't have if, if Jomin wasn't around, you know? So just, I just had a lot of people in my life and I, I, I really encourage people, no matter how ambitious you are, um, you know, to recognize those people that are a blessing to you, especially just people that have like minds, you know, and see what the synergy is, you know, between you and them, keeping them around, you know. So having a great uh, network who are uh, supportive and and being loyal, but also that um, you kind of pay attention to those people who are in our lives, and uh, that's really very wise. And uh, I think we should all uh, live up to that. Now, I can uh, help but ask you with this uh, COVID nineteen and coronavirus going on uh with and you're someone who is in education so how have your uh, profession has been impacted but also in in the place where you live in ghana i mean in terms of schools and education uh, the resources and all that so gosh you know so i you know right now i'm teaching at webster university and the Accra campus here in ghana and when COVID-19 hit, obviously because of social distancing, we went to um, online teaching, which I've done a lot. I mean, I design e-learning. Like I've done a lot of online teaching. I, I, I do coaching for, for people transitioning to teach online, etc. And somehow <laughs> here in Accra, when we have these classes online, just I don't know if it's the internet quality or what, but... I usually will have a few students dropping out of the class for a period of time and then coming back in and then another couple of students drop out of the Zoom call and then come back in. And it's just been, I mean, it's been so hard and so much harder to keep students engaged here in this environment in the online format than I've ever experienced with any schools that I've taught for online in the States of any class size uh, so it's been that's been a little a little rough, um, and I don't know how much maybe the pandemic itself has had something to do with that because you know we have to think about people's emotional states with the pandemic and how that affects our cognitive because there is an effect on your cognitive ability when you're stressed, and so just you know living through pandemic times could be affecting that. But I know that the infrastructure here being not quite what it would what it was in the states has definitely it's had quite an impact and it's made it really sad. I'll tell you something else talking about education and um, 
uh, in this pandemic. Talking, I, I have a bit of a focus on on the digital divide. Um, I had run a conference while I was at Florida State on um, how we can bridge the digital divide. That is the people who don't have access to, to technology and are being left behind while the rest of us are making leaps and bounds as a result of technology. And my mom has a, a an NGO, a charity school in one of the villages out here in Ghana. She's been running it for 30 odd years. And, um, you know, when the pandemic hit and they had to go home, you know, the schools in the city with people with, you know, all these affluent parents, et cetera, they just went online and the, parents are complaining I have to do all the teaching because they're still going these kids in the village they don't have computers at home they don't have all of that so the school just shut down and was shut down and it just shows you you know if anybody needs their education to not be interrupted it's these kids you know in rural areas and you know in poor areas in Ghana and they're the ones who ended up more impacted by it um, than anywhere else. I, I went through a couple of rounds of trying to find funding to get um, tablets for them that maybe they could share and you know find somewhere to charge, etc. But th- that w- it was really rough, and and it's one of those things that you have in a place, you know, places like like here where there's a little bit of resource poverty, where the pandemic really hits some people hard. Sounds like uh, uh, what has been happening in some of the other uh, areas in Africa that I hear about too, in Sudan and uh, certainly in other areas. So is the government doing anything about it? Well, the one thing that they did that I thought was great was, um, one of the things that they did that I thought was great was um, they've made data for education purposes free. I believe that's the, that's, uh, the, the the Ghana government, they, they did a few things. So there was electricity, some subsidies on electricity and water. And then I think data for education purposes was free. So that if, if you at least have the devices, then you don't have to worry about data costs, right? Because they're trying to at least facilitate distance learning in those, in those environments. Now, uh, as someone who, who have worked with students and, organizations i mean how do you deepen your personal relationship with your peers and the students and how do you balance your uh, your work and personal life since you seems like uh, working quite a lot with different projects wow actually you're asking me the hard questions <laughs> this is really so for me it's a constant struggle keeping a work-life balance because i do i get consumed I literally so I will work sometimes when I'm in the middle of a project so I'm in the middle of a relaunch right now for this um uh lectureSoft campaign where like the one I spoke to you about where we're just trying to make sure everybody knows that we're working on rote learning as something that was behind us you know and we're going to try to have more active engaged classrooms and so setting up this campaign and thinking about the goals of how do I get everybody talking about this right it yeah. is so consuming because there's such creativity to it as well, right? How do you, right. you know, hashtags or where can I share it? You know, how can we, you know, little videos and that sort of thing just, I can work pretty much around the clock. I fall asleep working, wake back up and just continue. <laughs> so yeah. um, when I'm paying attention to the balance, 
then I just try to make sure I'm reaching out to people and telling the people around me that, you know, they need to, to, to keep checking in with me and they need to watch that I'm not getting consumed because I do. But sometimes I think that's okay for short periods anyway. Um, but that's normally, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at keeping in touch with people. I'm highly extroverted. I sort of need my network and I have, you know, just really important uh, relationships. My big sister is another one that's just sort of one of my rocks. It's just always there. Uh, so I just, I just try to make sure that I'm reaching out. And if I see myself falling into sort of this abyss, I've learned over the past seven years or so to really take care of myself. So I stop and I think, what would make me really happy right now? How can I treat myself today? And I jump up and, 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 and go do it. So for example, <clears throat> over the lockdown, of course, everybody sort of slowed down. And even afterwards, I got into this rut of never leaving my house, just very rarely going anywhere, doing anything because I was working at a distance. And so I came up with a, a new thing to take care of myself. Every Friday night, I think of something that I can do nice for myself, that I leave the house, force myself to leave the house and go do something, even if it's just, you know, go up, grab an ice cream and come back or something, you know, um, go meet, meet up with, you know, friends or something. I've been trying to make, to consciously create that balance because it's not easy when you're when you're driven and trying to achieve something big you know so, so taking care of yourself and not forgetting about you and treating yourself that's a good segue mm-hmm. into asking you about what would you advise um especially for people in in the developing our uh, countries like uh, i mean other countries in africa and and beyond in terms of how do we develop uh, our leaders, uh, current and futures, given your uh, successful uh, journey? I would say that they need to make sure (coughs) that they have these, see, we're in, we're in sort of the, the information age. I call it the information overload age, right? And there's some core competencies that are required in this time. And these, I mean, this is for leaders, but really for, for anybody who, who wants to push through in their career, one is the ability to validate data. That means that when you get information, you need to be able to sort fake news from real news. What markers do you use to say, is this good information? Is this, is this good data? Because there's so much good and bad out there now. And so that's, that's the one. The second is your critical thinking and problem-solving skills. The types of problems that you will be facing today or the types of problems that your mentors or your teachers are going to face are different from the problems you are going to have to solve. So it's not about knowing the solutions to their problems. It's about having skills in problem-solving so that when your problem comes up, you can apply those skills and make sure that you can get through your situation. So because we're in such a time of change and flux and shifts and disruptive change in various industries, I'd say that that second one would be um, the problem-solving skills. The third one is digital literacy, and and that's for some of some of our some of our, our seniors, right? As well as um, the young people in Africa. In Africa, you can't take for granted that people have solid tech skills or solid computer skills when they come out of school, because some of them didn't have the resources to gain those, but we need to prioritize those because that is where so much is going. And so keeping up with the te- technology surrounding whatever you're doing, I think that's, that's, that's a huge deal as well. You know, 
and, and so, so those that would be the, those would be the three things that I would say is is one being really savvy, good at validating information and telling what's good, what's real, and what's not. Two, being really good at solving problems and, and innovating new problems even when they do come up. And three, paying attention to technology because half the disruption is coming through technology. Well, not half, more, most of the te- um, disruption is coming through technology. I certainly I agree that uh, paying attention to how one uses data in this uh, technological uh, age is very crucial. I mean, a lot of people have gotten in trouble so, uh, for using data or having information misinterpreted one way or other. So that's really a great uh, advice for our uh, current leaders and f- and future leaders. Now, on on the issue of giving advice, how would you, if, if any, uh, say anybody from America or the diaspora would want to uh, return to Africa, to Ghana, or from or to any other country in Africa, what would you say as someone who have been away for uh, 20 plus years and returned to sub-Saharan African country, what advice would you give? The ideal situation would be that you're coming back frequently, you know, you're, you're, you're coming back, maintaining your network, sort of talking to people, getting used to the systems here, you know, in smaller doses before you come back. You know, I was working on my PhD before I came, so I didn't have much time to come and, and stay here for stretches of time. But I would recommend that for one, is to try to sort of ease yourself um, into that transition. Secondly, because the cushions aren't quite as much here, is that you just try to sort out, and this is from various people's stories of, of returning or trying to return. You try to sort out your your income situation, whatever your, however your sustenance comes to you, you make sure that that's really solid before you come down here. It's a much tougher road, you know, coming down here and attempting to build um, that level of sustenance. So coming down with a job is always better. Coming down with maybe a large contract is always better or having some other source of income outside of here and then working off of that to get things done here as opposed to trying to spin it up here. Because that's that's always it's really tough and kind of difficult. Government of Ghana encouraging. Uh, I believe there's the year of return, and now it's the year uh, beyond uh, return. Can you, if you can uh, tell us more about that, so our uh, uh, audience can get a glimpse of what Ghana is doing in terms of uh, uh, this this uh, year of return and beyond return is all about. This is. Yeah, so the year of return was this, um, it was, I guess they were marking 400 years since, you know, the start of slave trade and kind of inviting Africans in the, or Africans, African-Americans, people of African descent in the diaspora to come, you know, to return, to come home and, and, and see if they wanted to be a part of, you know, the African story and how they could be a part and, and, and to, to, to kind of give them that welcome, I think in, in light of, some of the things that we're seeing in other countries and some of the ways in which people of color have felt um, like we've been sort of marginalized and sometimes discriminated against. I think it was, it was sort of timely and it worked out well. It ended up, I think the year of return to a large extent, the most vibrant part of it was the partying, (laughs) which we are good at at the holidays. It was amazing. Um, 
And a lot of people um, sort of had that, uh, had that, had that, that testimony to give, but on the economic side of things, you know, the government did try to create ways to make it easy for people to start businesses here or do things here. But there were the normal challenges that you find in this environment. <clears throat> businesses don't seed or grow as easily here. Um, and, and, and dealing with African culture against what other, you know, culture in other places, there was, there was a good bit of backlash as well that we got um, from our, our brothers and sisters in diaspora that came and, and came face to face with that and had to sort of deal with it. Some of them going back being like, I'm not going to do this anymore or whatever. But um, we have definitely had a lot of, you know, influx with that. And beyond the return was just pointing out that we weren't just doing it for the one year. This really, uh, you know, it's sort of an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing call at this point um, that the government of Ghana is hoping that, you know, people would come in both on the tourist side and on the development side that, that Africans across the diaspora of different types will all be invested in, you know, furthering the African story from here on out. So, so would you say it has, uh, economically, it has been a, a, a boom for the Ghanaian economy? So would you, it, would you argue that the, for the Ghanaian economy, the year uh, of return or beyond return has so far contributed positively uh, economically? Yes, definitely. I know there was a lot of money made over that, you know, last, last holiday season. So I'll say like December through January, sort of, there was a lot of money made. Now, whether or not that money trickles down into the actual infrastructure of the nation is, 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 is always questionable because we're in Africa and at least in sub-Saharan Africa, one of the biggest problems we have is that our resources do not go to the nation. They go to leadership, corrupt leadership for their own personal gain. So we don't know where that money went, but there was definitely a lot of, there were a lot of funds that came through here as a result of the initiative. And I mean, it's, it's ongoing this year. It probably won't be as big as it was because of COVID, but I know the intent is there. There are a lot of people who still want to come back and I'm sure for years to come as we keep up this, you know, beyond the return, near return, all of these different uh, Sankofa, various festivals that we're doing full circle that we will we'll continue to make, you know, some funds off of that. That's very interesting. Now, as we conclude this uh, uh, conversation, uh, what uh, questions are in your mind about the state of affairs in Ghana or uh, about the pandemic uh, per, uh, or any other uh, events that are occurring in the country or in sub-Saharan Africa that you're familiar with that? Uh, and then we'll conclude with that. Well, You know, one of the things when we were going through this back when the coronavirus had first hit in Ghana and we were all you know, wondering what was going to happen, we started out. We have a really good infectious disease center here, the Noguchi Institute, it's world class. And so there was, you know, they kind of mobilized and they started trying to collect data and see how this was spreading, etc. They talked a lot about this copy and paste issue where... You know, Africans or sub-Saharan Africans will, will tend to take a solution from somewhere else and just sort of plug it in where they are. Because, again, this issue with, with, with uh, critical thinking and problem solving, so you need to look at your circumstances and how to solve your problem 
versus porting problems from somewhere else, which is what you'll do when you don't have strong problem solving skills. And they talk about the lockdown and whether we should, we should lock down. There were papers, academic papers even, that talked about why things like, you know, shutdowns, uh, economic shutdowns were a bad idea in developing countries because we are a little bit too close to a sustenance line. And so you can literally starve people by doing something like that. Also, we're not in a position to be giving stimulus checks and things like that. So these are the things that support these kinds of initiatives like locking down these sorts of interventions, you know. And so there was a lot of back and forth. And I remember we had a few, um, I think six weeks or so, maybe a couple months of, of lockdown. I can't remember exactly. And when they lifted it, people were like, oh, but we're not in the clear yet. Why should you do that? And I, I actually kind of commended them for that because you could already see the signs of desperation, you know, for, for, for where we are. And so I do hope, even as we're going forward, that we are able to look at our situation with this pandemic for what our situation is and to consider our own factors in dealing with it because it has not been the same. COVID-19, the whole pandemic has not looked the same in this part of the world as it does in other places. Even in terms of the actual epidemiologists, we're not having the same experience, right? And so those are the things I think about a lot when I think about the pandemic is, is just this idea of copy and paste, but that only drives me more towards you know some of the initiatives that I've told you that we're working on you know, towards really pushing this critical thinking and problem-solving skills in schools and getting away from, you know, this rote learning where we, we have instructors, teachers who literally tell students, you can't think it through, just memorize it and put it down. And that's exactly the kind of thinking that gets you sitting beside a problem for decades, generations, and not even thinking how to solve it or looking at it unless a solution comes from somewhere else. And that's a lot of what we have. Um, in Africa, and, and really it starts from my education system. You know? Absolutely agreed. I mean, my own background, uh, I'm very familiar with the uh, uh, philosophy of just memorize it because that's how I, I, partially my education was through memorization. And uh, the critical uh, thinking element is uh, very, very important. So I commend you for uh, great uh, projects that you're doing and also what the Nevertiti project is doing in terms of uh, shifting this paradigm. With that, uh, where would people uh, go to find about this amazing projects that you're doing? Um, so if you can uh, give us uh, any uh, information where people can find you. So, I mean, the, the, the best place to start would be at, on our website, the Nefertiti Project.com. Um, so it's just the T-H-E, Nefertiti, that's N-E-F-E-R-T-I-T-I, projects, or one word, dot com. And the, in the, the initiative that we're starting now, giving 21st century alternatives to traditional lecture formats, specifically for educators and trainers, teaching them not to just lecture, but to do more active learning and engaged, learner-centered, critical thinking type activities um, that's called the, the LectureSoft Initiative, and that should be launching within the next couple of weeks. I'm really excited about it. Um, and, and all of that will be on our website and through our social media, or pretty much the Nefertiti Project and on different platforms. Thank you so much. I look forward to connecting uh, with your project on those uh, social media sites. And uh, I've been uh, uh, honored to have you on Momentum Africa podcast, and I look forward to uh, future interviews to uh, fill our uh, audience on what uh, the 
Nefertiti project uh, is able to accomplish for years and years to come. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Hashim. You're welcome. Thank you so much.